And uh, this morning we're starting a new Advent series and really focused on our humble stance before God. And today's passage comes from Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, 46 through 45. This is a passage called the Magnificat in Latin. That's like just the first word. It's a passage that has been used to inspire music for generations. And I think God has a word for us today. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we're grateful for your word. And we're grateful for what it speaks to in our life. And we ask that this moment that uh, your spirit would reign in our hearts, that you would allow us to put aside those parts of us that are so concerned with how we look and how we control our lives. And that your spirit would invite us to respond to you with humility and with surrender. Thank you, Lord, for Mary's life. And thank you for this passage that speaks to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. As I said, we're starting a new Advent series today. This is the start of Advent. And um, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Oscar Medina. I'm one of the elders around here. Uh, Jokingly, the elder elder. (laughs) Maybe with the next nominations, we'll nominate somebody that can take on that title from me. (laughs) Uh, so uh, it's not reminiscent, it's not at all forgotten to me that we just had Thanksgiving. There's a little bit more of me than there was last week. <laughs> you may or may not have known. I wore a bigger shirt just, <laughs> just in case. Uh, how, how did it go for you all? We, we, had, we had an interesting Thanksgiving. Uh, for, I think the first time in many years we decided not to have a turkey. That was kind of a, yeah, that was kind of a you know, uh, somewhat of a debate at home. Some people wanted a turkey, some people didn't care. So we ended up, we, we ended up with lamb, ham, and uh, seafood. So you know, it was great, and uh, we had a wonderful time. Uh, some, of the, some of the dishes, uh, some people didn't have any idea what they were. I made my stuffing that I've always made. Unfortunately, like I, after it was done, I left it in the oven to crisp up, but World Cup was on. <laughs> so it crisped up a little bit more than I intended it for, for it to be. Um, I, did your recipes work out? I'm, you know, don't all respond at once. But <laughs> uh, the, the reason why I ask about this is because just, I guess because all this is on my mind, as I looked at this passage, uh, I, I, I really felt like I want to tag this passage, a recipe for God's kingdom. Because I think that there, there are sometimes in our lives 
that as we seek to understand what it means to be in God's kingdom, we get confused. And sometimes we do what I do with my stuffing, or sometimes uh, we, we make mistakes. As a matter of fact, I have some, some stories of accidental inventions. Have you ever heard any of those stories about things that happen accidentally that become like these great things? Like, do you know the story about the chocolate chip cookie? In 1930, uh, this woman called Ruth Wakefield, she owned the Tall House Inn. Toll House was basically, it was a road from, between Plymouth and Boston, and people had to pay toll, and, you know, they had the canals and all that. So it was a different time. And so she had this kind of like a bed and breakfast thing. People would go and they would eat. And so she was trying to make chocolate cookies, but she had run, run out of baker's chocolate. And so she had a bar of chocolate, and she cut up into pieces and mixed it in. And her, her hope was that as she baked it, it would melt in, and it would still be a chocolate cookie. That didn't happen, as you know. It became a chocolate chip cookie, and that was the beginning. And it became famous, and like Nestle actually bought the recipe, and that's why all the bags say Toll House, because that was part of the agreement. Uh, so by accident, right? In 1905, Frank Epperson was making his own soda. And so he filled the cup with water, he put some powdered soda into it, and then a little stirring stick, so, you know, started around, and then he left it outside. But they froze overnight. And when he went outside, he took out the stick, and the, and the soda was stuck on the stick. So he took it to the, to the uh, flea market anyway, or whatever, the, uh, uh, where he was planning on selling it, and he called it the Epsicle, after his own, his own last name. Well, kids had a hard time, and every, all the kids would call him Pops. So they called it Pops Sickle. Pops Sickle. That's where Popsicle comes from. It was an accident in 1905. In 1956, William Greatbatch was working on, the, on a device to, to uh, record the rhythm of a human heartbeat. So he was working with a hospital, and, and that was the intent, really, to record that. So he made this little device. Unfortunately or fortunately, he used the wrong resistor in his device which was too strong, and instead of recording, it actually created intermittent electronic impulses, which from some trial and error, they realized could work as a pacemaker. Now, they already had pacemakers at the time, but the pacemakers filled the room, and it was incredibly painful for the patient, and the patient had to stay in the hospital the whole time they were using pacemaker. His invention revolutionized because now there was an implantable pacemaker, again, Absolutely accidental. But you know, some people go through life hoping to find one of those little accidents and become rich and famous and well-known. And some people treat their lives with Christ in the same way. They want to find their own little solution. They want to find their own little way of how I can be right with God, of how I can be right in this world, of how I can have peace in my life, of how I can be part of God's kingdom. And we try to find these ways in what we do and what we believe and how we behave and how we handle situations. But the kingdom of God is not accidental. And God has spoken throughout all time to our lives to clear the way for what it looks like. And I think in Mary we, we find some of that that applies so beautifully to our lives. And so uh, this little theoretical recipe that we're working on. Uh, the, the first piece of this recipe is a little bit of diced meat. 
a little bit of diced meat. So uh, Mary's really response here, and by the way, it's been used in music throughout centuries. Bach did a piece on it, Vivaldi did a piece on it, all manner of modern renditions. There's a song I remember from my college days that was always meaningful to me on this, but this was not a song for Mary. This was just her expression of faith. You could call her a poem, perhaps, but it's been made in, in music for so long. It's such a beautiful expression of faith and, and humble surrender to God. But before we look at her confession, we really need to go back and see what kind of triggered this kind of confession for Mary, this kind of wonderful response and magnifying God. You see, her initial reaction to the words of the angel that came upon her, uh, the first thing that happens is when he appears, and, 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 and uh, let me find that. Uh, the angel says, you're greatly honored. And she, the scripture says she's greatly troubled at the saying. Let me put this in a modern context. She's suspicious as heck. <laughs> Like, what the heck is going on? Why are you saying, I am greatly honored? She knew that her status, I mean, she was just a poor young woman, a maiden. And then he says, you're going to be pregnant, and it's going to happen in, you know, in a miraculous way. And her response is, are you nuts? And, you know, the Bible says, how can this be? But what it means is, are you nuts? I mean, I can just see Doretha, you know, with her, her attitude. What are you talking about? This is crazy. And so Gabriel continues and, and explains it to me, and then she just kind of humbly says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be according to, his, to your word. So to be absolutely clear, this is not joyful surrender at this point. This is like semi-comprehending surrender. She's being obedient. She's trusting. But she's got questions, and she's not sure. And I think, I think God knew this, and I think Gabriel was either led by God because Gabriel says, you know, by the way, you have a relative who's rather old. This Elizabeth, you know, you remember your relative Elizabeth? It might be interesting to know that she's, nobody thought that she could have babies, but she's pregnant too. Wink, wink. Get the hint. And then he leaves. What does Mary do? The passage says she went with haste to see Elizabeth. So I think it's incredibly, incredibly generous and incredibly uh, beautiful that God puts this into Mary's heart knowing that she was struggling. She was being faithful, she was being obedient, she was being submissive, but she didn't fully get it. She wasn't fully sure what God was about to be, and was about to do, so sends her to Elizabeth, and when she enters into the room with Elizabeth, immediately, the Bible says that the baby leaped. It wasn't just like a little kick. It's like she says, something different is happening here. And Elizabeth has this incredible expression of faith that, that speaks to her. And, and through those words, Mary gets it. 
you know, what, I, I think if there's nothing else we can get out of just the way that God worked uh, through this experience is how important close relationships are in our life. How important uh, community is in our life. How important is it to check and to see what God is wanting to do in our life? Because though Mary was obedient, this confession, this song of magnifying the God did not clarify until Elizabeth spoke into her life. And by the way, one, just to reduce down what Elizabeth said is, is, you are coming, sent by the Lord, with the Lord in your, in your womb. Do you get the importance of that? Elizabeth is saying, you are sent by the Lord, but you are the mother of the Lord. The incredible, incredible depth of understanding that came and, and understanding that God is not just the one who sends, God is the one who came and is coming. And so this confession from Elizabeth, who was, yes, the, the wife of, of a servant of the temple, but lived in a little podunk town on the outskirts of a, of a podunk town, poor people, speaking to a poor Mary, who, by the way, when, when, when Mary and Joseph took their child to the temple, they offered the poorest of offerings that could be offered. They were poor people. They were nobodies. And they felt like nobodies. And God said, you will be blessed among all women. And she had a hard time believing that. And Elizabeth said to her, you are highly honored. And she had a hard time believing it. But when Elizabeth said, the Lord has sent you and the Lord is in you, something in her clicked. And she realized that God is doing something far beyond my life. There's something really special that happens when we allow our lives to connect with others. Let God speak through the lives of others that intersect with ours. Because it didn't really connect until that moment. You know, and by the way, this is something important that happens often in evangelical churches where people get self-anointed, you know, self-proclaimed, self-certified. There's a great story, a uh, famous Baptist preacher back from the 1800s, uh, Charles Spurgeon was a pastor of one of the largest churches in London. And one day, uh, a young preacher comes to his church and says, God told me, that I should be preaching in your pulpit next Sunday. And Spurgeon looked him in the eye and said, no, he didn't, because he would have told me too. Right, that's, that self-anointing isn't always what it should be. And, and, and the ability for us to bring our pain, our lives, our choices, our decisions, our challenges, our obstacles, and, and let them rub together with other believers. And see if God is speaking to all of us together. And if God is confirming in your life, or, is, or if God is challenging your life, and, and that he speaks through us in community, small groups are a wonderful place for that. Or any way that you, could, you can meet with others. God used that in Mary's life in, in, in an, just an incredible way. And so after all that, and after kind of like the, the penny drops, and, and Mary's got it, and she's, she's, she's thinking... This is unbelievable. And I can't contain it. This is incredible. And she just bursts out and says, 
My soul magnifies the Lord. What, what he has done. Who he is. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Understanding that in my womb is my Savior. What starts out in Mary's life feeling like she's being sliced and diced up turns out to be a blessing so big that she can't contain it. There are times that we go through moments of pain, that we go through moments of suffering, of confusion, uh, that we think somebody made a mistake somewhere. Uh, God, you messed up. It shouldn't be this way. You promised to be with me. Why am I having these challenges in my marriage? Why am I unemployed? Why am I having difficulties with my children? Why did my father have to pass? Why is my significant other losing their mind and their memory? Why is cancer here? And we go through these hard times. And I don't want to minimize how difficult. And I don't want to in any way show any kind of disrespect for what pain you may be going through right now. But I can say to you that in the midst of your pain, God is at work. And that when you humbly submit pain and all, sliced and diced and cut all manner of ways, just a little bit, of humble surrender, God uses it in ways that you can never imagine. That, you know, I, I, I told myself I, wanted, I wasn't going to say it. You know, I think I've said it before. That song, Mary, Have You Heard, kind of annoys me, right? Because, yeah, she, she did know. <laughs> you, you know the song I'm talking about. Uh, but but there's, there, there's, there is a piece where Mary didn't know before all this, while she was being sliced and diced, what God was going to do and how God was going to bless her. And, and my only word, again, in, in total humility, having been there myself, that you don't know what God may do in your life as you go through those dark times. All we can do is trust in Him. Um, Hebrews 11 is a list of people that, that have gone through unexpected circumstances in their life, surprising, painful, uh, challenging, and through all of them, they responded in faith, and for all of them, God blessed them in unexpected ways. All right, so, so we're, we're back to the recipe. We said it's a little bit of diced me, but that's just to season it. It's three handfuls there's the second part of the recipe. Three handfuls of ripe humility pressed down tight. So and the reason why I'm, I'm saying three handfuls is because I really see in this passage three ways that we can respond humbly to what God is doing in us and around us. And as we respond to God in humility, God works in our life. And so the three responses... Uh, in humility to God, first, our response to his mercy, 
our response to his purposes, and our response to his gifts. So in verse 50, it says, his mercy is for those who fear him. You see, there's, I believe, a major misunderstanding in how we think about our response to God's calling upon us, to his mercy for us, to what it means to become a believer and walk in his path. Many of us think that the way it works is good people respond and come in, and bad people don't respond and reject. And that's not at all what the Scripture teaches. That's not at all what the Gospel's about. And we, so many of us, whether we outright say it or just kind of believe it in the background of our minds, we, we feel that way, that it's the good people who come in and the bad people who reject. Actually, those that respond to God's mercy and grace are those that know that they are bad. And those who reject are those who think that they are good. You get that? Do we need to go over that again? The ones who actually respond to God's mercy are the ones that know that they are in bad, that they are bad, and that they are in need. The ones who actually reject are the ones who believe they are good. Now, I want to make a distinction between coming into the church building and coming into God's kingdom. Because there are a lot of people who may come into this building that believe they are good and are just coming because they are good. That doesn't mean they've come into God's kingdom. Because the only way into God's kingdom is to know that you're broken, to know that you're messed up, to know that in the end you, we are sinners and we are the bad ones and, and stand in need of grace. The key is humility. Uh, there's a, a quote that I saw that struck me. I said, as Christians, we really have just one thing going for us. We have publicly declared that we are desperately in need of another to give us his righteousness, to complete us, to live in us. We have publicly abandoned the project of self-justification. That's really what we have going for us. So we've admitted publicly, we're messed up, and we stand in need. And, and our inability to do that is directly related to how we respond to God's mercy. Uh, I, I heard a story of a farmer who was speaking to someone that was staying at his, his, his uh, extra uh, bedroom, I think it was over the barn or something, and this was someone who just felt totally unworthy, totally unloved, and through their uh, contact, he came to see that, and so at one moment, over at the breakfast table, he says this, you know, everything all across this farm says the same thing. You know that, right? And he waited, looking at her in the eyes. She finally looks up, and he says, the seed breaks to give us the wheat. The soil breaks to give us the crop. The sky breaks to give us the rain. The wheat breaks to give us the bread. The bread breaks to give us the feast. Never be afraid of being a broken thing. 
we spend so much time projecting our appearance, our perceptions on others, social media, with our neighbors, manicuring what we look out, what we look like from the outside, that we're afraid to admit we're broken. We're afraid to, to admit our need before God. But God has never been about being good. God has never called us that that's what our purpose is out, but rather to admit that we're poor. And that in relationship with him, he sees us with, with different eyes. There's a second opportunity response to, uh, to God's call. We said the first one was to his mercy, the second one is to his purposes. In verses 51 and 52, he says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. One way to, that I, I, I see this is that he scatters those that are gathered and gathers those that are scattered. He scatters those that are gathered and gathers those that are scattered. It says he's pulled down the mighty. Not because they're evil, not because all the wealthy are all bad, but to show them that they are no better than the poor. You know, it's easy when we reach a certain condition, elevated condition in our lives, even when we, we become middle class. It's easy uh, to become privately proud of our accomplishments. Uh, because often we, we get to this place where we start to believe that what we've accomplished is because we've worked so hard or we're so good. And yes, we may have worked hard. And yes, we may have lived a moral life. But in the end, we, we, we need to remember that God is the one who exalts. God is the one who works in our lives. And, and God scatters often because many who have reached levels of incredible wealth or success or fame find that having reached that are still not satisfied. And where does that lack come from? Why is it that someone can become a billionaire or someone can, can win Super Bowls or, or World Series or become a, a famous actor or actress and yet still not be satisfied with their life? And it's because they lack the filling of that God-sized hole in their life. You know, God is not just interested in gathering us to him so that we become uh, believers and followers of Jesus, but he doesn't forget about us once we uh, respond to him and to his grace and mercy. I remember when I was a child, um, Fireflies, it seems like, the, you know, you, how many of you like, have ever seen fireflies? Okay, that's a good number. You know, a lot of kids I talk to say, no, I've never seen a firefly. Fireflies were great. You know, I, we would get a, a bottle and, and something to cover, you know, cork it with or something, and we'd just go around following, you know, they're slow, and you, you'd go from behind and, and get them in there, and after a while, you have like a little nightlight, right? You know, you have 10 or 20 of those in there. And you keep it covered up, but you know, especially as a child, many times like I would do that, and, and then when I went back, like they'd all be dead, right? Because, you know, I didn't poke little holes or, you know. Once I captured them, I forgot about them. I was just interested in, in that exercise of, of getting them in. God doesn't do that to us. 
God is not just about getting us in the bottle. It's not just about becoming a member. It's not just about walking the aisle. It's not just about saying the sinner's prayer or whatever in your mind it means to come to Christ. God is about molding who we are in the image of Christ. God is about helping us to see ourselves and him and others as he does. Uh, C.S. Lewis' Narnia uh, stories has just wonderful analogies and metaphors that, that speak to my mind. One of them is in the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It was one of the movies that came out. You might remember there's an incident where they come on this island and there's these invisible dwarfs. They're called Bufflepuds. If you've seen the movie, you might remember that part. And while they're invisible, they're standing on one another's shoulders so that they sound like they're really big and they're saying that, you know, like nobody could see them and they have clubs and they would hit people when they weren't watching because, you know, they, didn't, they were afraid of somebody grabbing their clubs. So they just hit them when their backs were turned. They would say that they are ugly and they have big fangs and they would say all these things to intimidate uh, but then, little by little, the, the magic wore off and the people were able to see them and laughed at them because they looked ridiculous. And have you ever noticed how much effort we do to become invisible? Literally, to become invisible to people around us. We don't want them to see who we really are. We don't want them to see our big feet, so to speak, metaphorically. We don't want them to see that we're broken, that we're not as menacing, as big, as powerful, as important as we want people to think. And so we, we live with these shields around us. We live a life of invisibility. The only problem is, yes, people don't see our faults, but they don't see us at all. Because our Brokenness is part of our identity. And unless we allow God to totally consume our, all that we are, including our brokenness, we will never be seen. And if we're never seen, we'll never be made whole. And so we live lives not only keeping our, ourselves hidden, but not seeing others as they are either. And God's invitation to us is so that we can see with his eyes. So that when we look at the wealthy, we, we understand that before God, they are the same level as we are. And, and, and God brings them down because so often they think that, that they've accomplished something that, that sets them apart and sets them up higher and God brings them down for us as well. And God takes the, those of humble estate who sometimes we might easily dismiss because of the way they, they, they dress or because of the way they talk or because of the color of their skin or because of the accent that they may carry in, in learning a third language. And God exalts them up and says, this, this person who you despise, this person is my child created in my image. And I have a purpose for this person that will astound you. Just watch and see. That's how God speaks to our lives. The third response, we talked about the response to his mercy, response to his nature, his purposes. And the third is response to his gifts. 
In verse 53, it says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, uh, you know, we've been talking about pie, and, uh, and so when I say, you know, hungry, you know, I'll, it's not triggering anybody. I know it's getting on in time. I've got to finish up here pretty soon. But uh, Mary, in, this, in the, this expression of faith, is not talking about distribution of goods. It's not about, oh, you're wealthy, we're not giving you anything. You're poor, here, you take it all. This isn't about distribution of, uh, of, uh, of gifts. This is about, uh, who, it's not about who gets more or who gets less. You see, the gospel never really cared about wealth of a person as long as that person did not hold their wealth as their treasure. What this is about is where is your treasure? See, what she's talking about is how God responds to the things that we treasure. If we come before God and, and, and our attitude is one of hunger for what he offers, he will fill you with good things. If we come before God and our attitude is that we are rich, that we have all that we need, and maybe we might feel that way because because we have been blessed monetarily, or because we have been blessed in, in other ways, and yet we for, we've forgotten our humble response to God. We walk away hungry. So, so all of this, coming back to the pie, really, uh, what kind of thing are we building here? Is it a pie? Is it a, a, like a beef wellington? You know, uh, I like to think it's a, like a tamale. Uh, have you ever had like Caribbean tamales, Cuban tamales? You know, and uh, in the old days they would ma- they would make them. You know, they make the mixture and put some pork and some meat in it, and then they would put it in corn husks, and and cook it, right? But you, you know, it's a lot of work because taking corn husks and folding it and tying it up so it doesn't leak. That's a lot of work. So modern days you use aluminum foil, right? You don't use corn husks anymore. You make a little envelope in aluminum foil. You put it in there, close it up. You put it in a pot of boiling water leave it for, I don't know, half an hour or so, and it sets, and it's delicious. But what happens is if the foil is not tied, is not bent right, it's not, it can leak. And so the wrapping is so important. And the last part of this recipe is all of this is wrapped in God's promises. All of this is wrapped in God's promises. Yes, a little bit of diced meat, Yes, three handfuls of humble, uh, uh, ripe humility pressed down, but it's all wrapped up in God's promises. And as we, we reach the end of this passage, Mary is saying, you know, he spoke all of this to our fathers. The NIV says, just as he promised. She's realizing that all of this that she's talking about, this has been talked about. And she was a young woman who was raised in the synagogue. And, and in, her, in, her, in her words here, she refers back a number of different passages. Some of the things that she says sound just like what was said by Hannah when, when she received Samuel. She knows the stories. She knows the passages. 
There's a portion that sounds just like Psalm 35. There's a portion that sounds just like Habakkuk 7. This was rich in her heritage, and she's saying, all of this, God has already promised to us. And it's, uh, it's promised because it's not just what he's doing for me. It's what he's doing for the world. See, a concept that I think is really important for us to remember is that Christianity is not, it's not about our private lives. Christianity has is, is always been inevitably public. Now, you go to a bookstore and you look on shelves and you'll see uh, rows and rows and rows of shelves on self-help. And there's all different kinds. And some of those will even flow over into the Christian section. You know, Christian, but it's self-help stuff. I don't want to malign. I'm not saying self-help is wrong or bad, or, or you know. But I am saying that when our lives are driven by a desire for self-help, that leads to a very private, self-managed uh, religion. We're curating our own religious expression. We're managing it on our own, and. And, and the gospel is inevitably public. And, and what Mary is saying is what God has done, he hasn't just done for me, he's done in a way that has completely revolutionized the world and changed the world and impacted the world. Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 10, just a little bit ahead from where we are, the angel comes back again, again on that promise and says, I bring good news for all people. That's what God was about. And that's what God was doing. So uh, maybe you come broken this morning. Maybe you come uh, feeling that there's no way out. That you've done all that you are able to do and there's nothing else that can be done. Or maybe you come satisfied. That you're in a good place. Things are, things are going well. And you feel that nothing is wrong. Either way, God's promises are for you. Either way, to be in God's kingdom is to receive humbly what he would give to your life. As we respond to his invitation and humility, his promises come to fruition in our lives. Now, when... Uh, when Mary had finished talking, Scripture says she, she went back to Joseph. She stayed there a few months, three months, and then she went back, not knowing how Joseph would respond, not knowing what was coming in her future. It wasn't over, but she knew that God was walking by her side. She knew that her sacrifice and her humble surrender God had taken and blessed in ways that she could never imagine. And, and I think that as we, as we come together t today, re wherever you may be in your life, understand that God knows your pain. God knows your, your doubts. God, God knows your confusion. God understands. You may not like where you are. You may even question what has happened that you are where you are. God's promises are that he has a purpose for you. Will you join me in prayer?
Lord, thank you for today and for your word. Thank you that you invite us to respond, knowing that you have done all that needed to be done. Your hands have wrought our salvation. Your sacrifice has given us a way out. Your love has reached into our brokenness, and you see us with eyes of grace. You see us and you see your son. Help us to respond. Help us to follow, even when it seemed hard. 